Well, as we approach the end of the book of 2 Samuel, we're shown a picture of David worn down from battle. That first verse that we read in this section shows us that David fought against the Philistines and David grew weary. It's a weariness that fits the whole trajectory of where 2 Samuel has been going. Ever since chapter 11, things have gone steadily downhill. Chapter 11 is where David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then, to cover it up, murdered her husband, Uriah. And then, since that point, there has been nothing but bad news for David and for Israel. David has lost three sons. He faced a long, drawn-out battle with his son, Absalom ending in the boy's death. Then in chapter 20, a chapter we uh, mercifully skipped in this series, David once again faces a rebellion and needs to put it down. We feel, as we read through these accounts, that David is almost stumbling to the end of his days. And we ourselves know that weariness in the Christian life, don't we? We know what it's like to battle. You battle your sin. Sometimes winning, oftentimes feeling like you're losing. Small victory here, major defeat, major setback there. When will it end? When can we see some signs that things are going to turn around? We know this weariness when we try to stay faithful in our culture sometimes feels like it's just a constant uphill battle. I feel like every time I turn on the news or I watch a movie, it looks like Christianity is losing. It feels that way, doesn't it? Seems like on every front, Christianity is becoming less plausible, more marginalized, if not in some cases demonized. You have to think, is it worth the trouble? Is it worth the trouble to be a Christian in public? You go on vacation, and it's just kind of tempting to stay on vacation. Not to get back into the grind, not to fight the fight. And now we come to this point in 2 Samuel, and we're left with what seems like a strange mishmash of episodes. Some scholars call this just a random appendix, as if we get to the end of 2 Samuel and we get the whole junk drawer of David's life. Everything they couldn't fit in the the other places, they just sort of throw in in this last section. Is there a point? Is there a purpose to these narratives? Well, I want to argue that this section is exactly what the readers of 2 Samuel need at this point. Far from being random, I think it's the perfect conclusion. For just at the point of despair, we get snippets of these heroics. Just when we're about to give up on the fight, we are reawakened to the worthiness of the battle. So let's listen to hear God's word through these chapters, but also God's word to us, and in doing so, 
Let's ask his blessing. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to your word and ask that it uh, be the power, the very power of the gospel to bring life into our hearts. Uh, Use these words, uh, your words, to bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You read chapters uh, 21 and chapter uh, 23, and the stories just jump out at you as if they're, they're coming right from the screen of your favorite superhero movie. This is Superman and Batman and the Avengers and the X-Men all rolled up into one. David's super elite warriors. They even have a cool name. They are the Giborim. The Giborim. The mighty men. Those who are the heroes. These are David's close companions and soldiers. Episode of episode, we see them doing battle with the impossible. Here they're fighting what's called in verse 16 the descendants of Rapha. Rapha uh, could mean a family name, but it is a word that also means giants or titans. They are significant, great big, hulking men. And we get a little taste of that. One of the guys holds this huge spear just the tip of which is about eight pounds. Another guy is called Goliath. And we see that from uh, 1 Chronicles 21 that uh, that's actually Goliath's brother out to do battle. Another guy has six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, as well as being a giant. That's crazy. And they fight, and David's warriors defeat them all. But you know, this isn't a superhero movie. And if we treat it as a superhero movie, we are going to miss the point about David's mighty men. You see, the story like that, if it was simply about these heroics, would do no good for us. We know that we're not mighty warriors. None of us have uh, uh, the ability to relate to someone winning a superhuman victory over incredible enemies. The point here is not the heroics. It's not their strength. It's not their courage that we should emulate. Our focus is not on the fighters, but what they are fighting for. That they are fighting giants is there to illustrate that the battle is that important. It's that vital. It's even worth fighting overwhelming odds against what might seem like an impossible enemy. That point is made a couple of ways in chapter 21. Think about that guy with, with 24 fingers and toes, We're told that he's a man of great stature, a a descendant of giants. You do not go to war with this guy. You don't pick a fight with him. He is the guy you stay away from, that you keep your head down around, that you avoid at all costs. They didn't go to war with him because he was a big, scary guy. 
They didn't go to war with him because he's a giant. Verse 17 says, they went to war with him because he taunted Israel. So Jonathan, son of Shimei, struck him down. Now, taunting here is not name-calling. It's not as if they were sensitive to the names that this guy was calling him, calling, calling them. No, the whole point is that he was emulating what Goliath was doing. He was standing in direct contradiction to God's word. And he was mocking the people of God with these taunts in such a way that God's people were beginning to lose hope. And if it is like that story in 1 Samuel 17 where Goliath was taunting the people of God, we saw that they were shrinking back in fear, not believing the word of God, not believing who God was, getting worn down. If left unchecked, Israel would be tempted to believe the lie. It's the same thing when we hear that Christianity mocked or or criticized in, in public and sneered at and denigrated. Not that we need to go to battle with it, but after a while, if just left unchecked, it affects the people of God. We can get worn down. Maybe God is uncaring. Maybe he is unable to do anything. Jonathan, son of Shimei, says, no, I will not let this happen. This is a battle worth fighting. And so he throws himself against this man of insurmountable strength. The other example comes from that first episode in in verse 15. The men begin to fight with David, and they realize that David has grown weary, that he is putting himself at risk. And so they said, you must not fight, David. You must remain safe. The direct words they say to him in verse 17 is, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. What are they saying to David? The emphasis isn't on his weakness or his frailty or that he's incapable. It's on his value. They call him the lamp of Israel. It's an image drawn from the sanctuary where the ever-burning lamp in the tabernacle stood there as a sign of Israel's complete dependence on God's favor. The lamp was was their hope. It stayed lit knowing that this is what they hoped in, that God would give them light. It is his revelation. It's his guidance. It's his word of salvation. The lamp was his word of hope. Without it, God's people are in darkness. They're lost. They're left to flounder in despair. David is the light, not simply because David was a man after God's own heart, not simply because he was a man of great faith. David was the lamp, not even because he was king, however important that is. He was the lamp because of what God did in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God made a covenant with David and his dynasty that the descendants of that dynasty would be a blessing to Israel and to the world. 
David was that significant. His line was that significant because it was tied to the promise that God made. A promise of hope. A promise of blessing. And it wasn't just a nationalistic blessing. It was a blessing for all the nations. And of course, as the Bible unfolds, we see that this, is, this descendant of David is Jesus. The light of the world the true lamp that the lamp was always there to represent. You know, Abishai fights this battle. He, he gets out of bed and fights giants, not because he's a macho man who just likes to go against the, the biggest and the baddest. No, he saw the very gospel at stake. He saw, he saw that if if he didn't step in, the lamp would be quenched. And he says, that's a battle worth fighting for. That's the point of these stories. They show that the battle is for the gospel, and it's worth facing insurmountable odds. Enemies that it would be crazy otherwise to go into war with. That's the point of these stories. I call them stories, but they're not much of a story. To be honest, uh, they aren't stories at all. There's no embellishing of the drama. We don't get many of the gory details that we uh, come to be familiar with in many of these battle scenes throughout Scripture. There's no dramatic tension. You know, if we're frank, what we have here at the end of, in, in the end of uh, chapter 21 and, and even into chapter 23 is just a glorified list. I'll be thankful that I didn't read all of chapter 23. I just had us read one section of it. But in both of these chapters, there's just name after name. Chapter 23 ends with 37 names, like Mabunai the Hushathite and Eliam the son of Ahithophel of Gilo. Poor David, the scripture reader, would have never forgiven me if I made him read all of those. Why rattle off all these names? Why these these brief little snippets of these battles that were fought, just listed one after another? And it isn't just here. We see other parts of scripture that just seem to, here and there, throw in lists of names. It's not just an an Old Testament thing. We see it there in the New Testament. Colossians 4, list of names. Romans 16, a massive list of names. Even the tiny book of Philemon that is, you know, just struggling for all its space it can have in the Bible has a list of names. Why? Well, the truth is, we need this list of names. We need to hear them. We need to hear about real people sacrificing and serving. We need to hear the names of people more than just David and Moses and Paul and Peter. We need to hear about people like Phoebe and Julia who were giving their all for the church in Rome. We need to hear about Epaphroditus who, Paul tells us in Philippians, even though he was at the point of death, he was just deathly sick. He is doing his all to cheer up the church. We need to hear about those who are 
sacrificing to have their church, their home opened to, for, for the church to worship in. We need to hear about the guy who spends his week's vacation so that, so that he can teach Jesus to little kids in a sweaty gym. We need to hear about the woman who, who takes money and doesn't put it in her 401k like everybody tells her to do, but she, she gives so a church plant can get off the ground. We need to hear these stories. We need, to, we need these lists of the names of people who are sacrificing. Not to make them look good. Not to make us feel guilty. But to show us that the battle is worth it. You know, we, we live in such a great age of activ- activism. I really mean that. I mean, just think about this year, 2018. So many people are galvanized for causes, passionate about all these different issues. You've seen it. You've seen it around you. It may not be your issue. You may be on the other side of the issue. But just because you're seeing people so passionate about it, you take the issue more seriously, don't you? I don't want to take anything away from some of these causes. Many deserve our passion. But sometimes I have to think, where are the Christians? Where are the Christians contending for the gospel? I see pastors sometimes more inspired to to comment on a social issue than they are about the gospel. And no, they're not the same thing. One reason may be that I'd, some of us don't think the gospel is at risk. We've grown comfortable with it being present and around us, and we don't ever see a day when the light would be quenched. But I fear most of us are convinced that the battle is not worth fighting. We see other things that seem more relevant, more effective, more practical more worth our time and effort. The truth is, people already see what we're devoted to. It's all around us. Your children can tell what you value. They see it in what you give your time to. My mom and dad didn't have to say one word about what they were passionate about. My dad worked a job that he, I think probably, to be honest, couldn't stand with a hellish commute every single day. Not because he loved his job. They scrimped and saved because they valued very deeply that my brother and I would go to college. They didn't have to say one word about education, although they did. (laughs) But it oozed out from everything that they did that it was worth it. Those around you see what you value. Your children pick it up every late night meeting, every time you sacrifice. You are sending messages about what battle is important. What do you value? What do people say is worth it when they see you? Well, this list of mighty men ends at the, cha- at the end of chapter 21. But then chapter 23 comes around. 
two chapters later, and, and it picks up again. I only included one story here, but the whole section reads like this great big honor roll of those fighting for the kingdom of God. And the one story I included is perhaps one of the most remarkable stories in Scripture. It's an incident that occurred probably early in David's life, maybe even before he was king. We saw in 1 Samuel chapter 22 that when he was on the run from Saul, he would hide out in the cave of Adullam. Here in this chapter, we see that the enemy this time is the Philistines. Those infamous enemy, uh, the infamous enemies of God, they had overrun the promised land. They seem to be everywhere, and they are in David's hometown. David is hiding out in a cave, and there he expresses every bit of how life often feels. He's discouraged. He's thinking. How can this be God's plan? This is not the way it's supposed to go. I mean, have you felt that way? You know that feeling? You look around at the circumstances of life, and and it feels like the people who are following God are stuck in a cave when everyone else is enjoying the party. It's that same weariness that we saw at the beginning of this uh, reading in chapter 21. David is weary from battle. How will good ever come about? Sure, God may have done great things in the glory days back then, but man, is the church fading now? He sees a garrison stationed in Bethlehem. Philistines, the anti-Israel. The ones that stood against everything Israel believed in. They are now making themselves comfortable in David's backyard. And David, sitting in that cave, begins to daydream. And he daydreams out loud. You see, Bethlehem was more than just David's hometown. Bethlehem literally means the house of bread, which indicates that it was a land of plenty. There was water there. There was abundant harvest there so that you could make bread. It was most likely a small-scale promised land. A garden-like setting, rich with food and drink. David sees it and he says longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. You see what he's asking for here? It's more than a cup of water. David's crying out for a taste of heaven. He craved ultimate deliverance from God's enemies. He longed to be in the promised land, not when there's one enemy to fight. He wants to be in the promised land where there's peace. Do you long for heaven like that? Sometimes I think we can be content being in the cave. Sometimes we can just make peace with enemies in the land. We can make do with it. But you know, that's a hopeless place to be. Because in reality, we can't make peace with injustice. 
We can't make peace with sickness and death. We can't soften sin and all the miseries that it brings with us, with, with it. You see, David feels this frustration. He feels the frustration of the now, and he longs for the not yet. He longs for that day. He is groaning with all of creation, as Romans 8 says, for the ultimate hope. He wants it so badly that the words unconsciously spill out of his mouth. And his mighty men hear him. And before David can take it back, the three of them leap out of the cave, rush down to the Philistines, and like Chuck Norris and Rambo and the Terminator, they just go to war. I know, i got to update my action figure references, right? They go to war with everybody in the Philistines. They break through the line. They get to the well. They get the cup of water, and they come back to David. I want us to see what this really is, though. They knew they weren't just satisfying David's thirst. They were giving him a taste of heaven. They were bringing him the down payment of what all of what God had promised. They said, I want you to taste it, David. While you're being discouraged, I want you to taste it. That's exactly what we should be doing when we give mercy in the name of Christ. Whether that's through Impact Week, whether it's through I Heart New Haven Day, whether it's doing mercy in this church, it isn't simply polishing the brass on the Titanic. cleaning up here on something that's eventually just going to be destroyed and fade away. That's a lot of the way mercy's done in the world. And there's a place for that. It can be good repairing something that will inevitably crumble. But that's not what we're saying when we do it in the name of Christ. It's saying, I want you to taste a little bit of what Christ has come to accomplish, what he is bringing. Yes, there will be a day when the curse of sin is destroyed. I want you so badly to taste that day. I want you to just get a glimpse of it. And it won't get there through just acts of mercy. It comes only when the core is dealt with. That's why Christ came to defeat sin and death and get to the root of evil, to crucify it on the cross and to make all things new. We need that taste. That's the logic behind the Sabbath. We need to have these days where we taste it. Well, David sees this amazing act of love and faithfulness, and he responds in what seems like the most ungrateful act in the history of the world. He pours out the water onto the ground. What are you doing, David? Didn't you see what we just did? What's he doing? Well, there are really two things going on here. First, in pouring out the water, David's making clear that he is in no way a leader like the leaders of the world. You see, the, the leaders of the world all demand to be served. They have no problem saying, I need a glass of water. Go and fetch it, even if it means risking your own life. David says, I'm not, a, I'm not a king like that. 
He's emulating his greater son, Christ, who says, I come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Now, David will not lord his kingship over them. He is one of them. They are not of lesser value. And so this wonderful act of pouring it out, he's saying, far be it from me, Lord, for me to accept this. What a wonderful leader. The second thing, he's pouring this out not to waste the water. He's pouring it out, as it says in verse 16, to the Lord. That's not an act of denigration. It's actually veneration. He is saying this act is so worthy of esteem. He's putting it in its proper light. Look at how he translates their act. He says, what you have given here is not water, it is your blood. And you are not giving it to me, you have been giving it to the Lord. It was a supreme act of faith in all of God's promise. They were so confident in the blessings that God would give, that God would be good to his word, that, that one day he would, they would give peace in the land. He's so confident in the salvation that was going to happen that they go out with this act while they saw David discouraged. David sees how sacred an act this was. And he says, I am not worthy. Far be it from me. Shall I drink the blood of these men? He knows that what they were giving here was a drink offering. You see, in the temple system, Drink offerings went alongside the animal sacrifice you were bringing. They represented the fruits of the labor of the worshiper. And in many of the same ways as we bring our offerings to God, it's not just simply the check we write or the little money we put in to the, to the plate. It's, it represents everything that we have is to God. And in the same way, the, the drink offering was to represent it all to God. It's a sign of the fruits of our labor. That's why Paul in 2 Timothy could look back at the end of his life on all of his labors and say, I offer it to the Lord. I pour it out as a drink offering. It's a sign of devotion. It's not out of a motive of guilt or obligation. There's no sense that Paul was doing this or these men were doing this because they were dutiful were because in some twisted way they thought they were earning favor. Now they believed so deeply in what God was doing that they risked all to be part of it. You know, to, to be honest, it doesn't matter if they ever made it back to David. That's not the point. Winning the battle wasn't the point. It was they saw this deed and they said, you know, this is worth the risk. They fought the good fight. They finished the race. They kept the faith. Henceforth, there is a crown of righteousness laid up for them, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on that day, and not just to them, but to all who have longed for his appearing.
There's one last thing to be said about this good fight that God calls us into. Perhaps maybe the most necessary thing to be said here at the end of 2 Samuel. For we have experienced the battle and we know that it is hard. We know it's hard not just because the enemies of the Christians are great in some way, but we know that it's ourselves that stand as enemies so often because of our sin. We see ourselves dragging us down away from Christ. Second Samuel feels like it ends with so much failure. I mean, if you've been reading this, you know, David's shine has worn off. He faces rebellion after rebellion. We get to the end of the book and we agree the battle is demanding, it's costly, and it doesn't look like it's going to end well. And so we need to see there's more going on here than just a list of stories from David's glory days. You may have the question, why do these lists start in chapter 21, skip a chapter, and finish in chapter 23? The question that should be on all of our minds is a structure of Hebrew poetry, which in its chiastic structure has the main point in the middle. And so we're left to say, what in the world must be in chapter 22? And there we find this wonderful song sandwiched in these stories of God's people fighting the good fight, this song that makes clear that it has been God who has always been fighting. He has been the real force behind all of these battles. He's the one that gives strength to those who fight. He's the one that arms and equips us for battle. But more than that, he's the one who heard our cries and comes down from heaven to move heaven and earth to assure us of the victory to come. So that chapter 23 can even say in in verses 10 and verse 12, the Lord brought about the victory that day. You see, these stories aren't meant to make heroes out of ordinary men. But it does remind us in the midst of the weariness, in the midst of the temptation to despair, in the midst of say, you know what, I need a break. Just give me some of the world for a while. I can go back to my Christianity later. Just give me a little taste of this world. It reminds us that once we've given, gotten a little taste of heaven, the one really who has done the battle, the one really fighting, is the one who's also assured the victory. God is faithful even in our meager efforts, even in the efforts tainted by sin and weariness. He takes our sacrifice of time, of energy, of money, and he, through that, brings about this deliverance accomplished by Christ. Oh, to do something for Jesus. To do something for him, something risky. Something costly, something that cries out, it was worth it. I'll close with these words from J.C. Ryle that I put at the beginning of your bulletin. Ryle says, No man was ever sorry that he served the Lord. No man ever said at the end of his days, I have read my Bible too much. I have thought of God too much. I have prayed too much. 
I've been too concerned about my soul. Oh no. The people of God would always say, had I my life over again, I would walk far more closely with God than ever I have done. I am sorry that I have not served God better, but I am not sorry that I have served him. The way of Christ may have its cross, but it is a way of pleasantness and a path of peace. Let's pray.